Oh, good evening, everybody. How are you? Good, good. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of John, chapter 6. Book of John. We've been walking through this, our lectionary passage for today. We've been kind of walking through this chapter here. Um, we're going to start with verse 51. I, Jesus is speaking, am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. We just agree at first that this is kind of a strange passage, or it seems kind of strange to us. It's really, really difficult. And it would have been really difficult for those in the first century at this time, too. Um, Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Well, at the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus feed the 5,000, right? He kind of acts out himself as this bread of life. And then he works through this all the way through the chapter, saying, I am the bread of life. This would have been a difficult teaching for the people at this time. The bread of life, how are you as a person, food and bread? This doesn't seem to make sense. It's challenging, but they're kind of hanging with him. They're sticking with him. And then finally, at the end here, he takes it up a whole nother level. And he says, actually, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, which would have been really offensive on multiple levels to these people. The first level, <laughs> first level we could probably agree with, it's just icky. There's an ick factor, right? Is Jesus talking about cannibalism here? Like, what is happening? Eat his flesh and drink his blood? What is he talking about? But Jesus doesn't let them off the hook here. He says, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then they argue sharply around themselves, what does this mean to eat his flesh? And then he says, oh yeah, you need to eat the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. And then they're kind of still arguing. And then he's like, in case you're unclear about this, at least that's how I read it. My flesh, real food. My blood, real drink. So it's not like they can float into a metaphor here. He's saying this really specifically, and, and it's a really difficult teaching. So what is he talking about this here? Um, it's icky, but what is he looking at here? Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. We don't read from this very often. But it's really important for us when we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus to remember that Jesus has placed himself as part of a story. The story of the Jewish faith. The story of the Jewish people. The story of the Old Testament. That he's part of a narrative. Now he came to fulfill that story as the ultimate fulfillment of that but he is part of that story. So when we see Jesus kind of criticizing the Jewish faith and practice all throughout his life, we need to remember that this is a critique from within Judaism. He's part of it. He owns this story. He has something at stake here. And we can recognize in our lives how a critique or a criticism is best received when it comes from somebody that knows us, right? Somebody that cares about us. Somebody that has some skin in the game that knows who we are. The most damaging critiques, the most difficult critiques, can often be those that are from uh, those who don't know us, those that are far away, that kind of throw stones or they make superficial judgments from a distance. 
So it's so important when Jesus says harsh statements that criticize the Jewish faith and practice that we know he's one of them and he's criticizing from within. So let's look at Leviticus 17. This is Yahweh speaking, verse 10. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from their people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Any Israelite or foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth, because the life of every creature is in the blood. That is why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is in the blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. So it's pretty clear they're not supposed to do what? Eat blood, right? This is a pretty clear statement of what's happening here. Now, why? The book of Leviticus, it says here, it says, because the life of the creature is in the blood. Well, what does that mean? That doesn't make any sense to us, right? It was believed in the ancient Near East at this time that what made an animal an animal, or what made a person a person for that matter, was the life that was in the blood. That somehow what animated them was somehow in the blood. Now, when we look at these obscure Old Testament kind of commands, some of them are not relevant for us today, some of them are really difficult. How does this make any sense? We need to remember that when Yahweh gives commands to his people, he's trying to communicate something about his nature and who he is. So when he speaks into a particular cultural context, he's trying to convey something about who he is. So here I wonder if Yahweh is saying to them, if the life is in the blood, he is saying, I am the one who has the power to give life. I am the one who has the power to sustain life, and ultimately I'm the one who has the power to end life. And I know you think you take life because you hunt, but always remember that it is I who gives, sustains, and ends life. They are supposed to recognize God's sovereignty in all of life. So one of the things that Jesus is doing that's pretty profound is he's saying, I know that this has been our story. We've been part of this. But now I'm inviting you to participate in my life. I'm inviting you to come into a place that has only been part of God. I'm inviting you to participate in the life of God. It's a beautiful and amazing thing. But it would have been really difficult for them. And uh, uh, he's challenging them that they have to leave some of their Jewish cultural particularities behind. Now, Jesus did this a lot uh, throughout the Jewish culture. He kind of pointed out certain things, and he didn't cast them aside, Jewish particularities, but he reinterpreted them. And he showed them kind of the intention behind them. We see this in John chapter 2 at the beginning of John's gospel. When Jesus enters into the temple and he begins clearing tables out. And he calls out judgment on the temple and the people of Israel and what they're doing in the temple. Now this was a really big deal. The temple was this really significant place in all of Jewish life and all of their history. The temple was the dwelling place of God. And what they believed is they believed that God, and what we believe, is God desires to dwell among his people. And as they saw the temple and they participated at the temple and they walked to the temple, they recognized that in a world, an ancient Near East culture, where there are lots of gods who are seen as distant and far away, our God has chosen to live among us, to live with us. And his desire is not only to just live in the temple, but to invent, eventually inhabit all of the heavens and the earth. So this is really significant here because um, they are 
um, Jesus is challenging the temple structure. And he recognized that the children of Israel at this time had taken this beautiful place, the temple, that's supposed to be a sign of God's dwelling place, and they had made it a point of separation. They had made it a place of distinction between us and them. So the closer that you were to the temple, and if you did everything right, and all of these rules and regulations became more and more intricate, if you did all of that stuff right, you were part of the in-group, but everybody else was out. So instead of becoming this beautiful healing place of God inhabiting the world, it became a point of distinction and separation. So he calls them out here. There's actually a debate among scholarship about this passage because um, John has it at the very beginning of his gospel, the temple cleansing in John chapter 2. Matthew has it at the very end of his gospel. So a lot of scholars look at that and they get kind of confused by it and they go, there must be two temple cleansings here. must have been one at the beginning of Jesus' life and one at the end, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think John is making it really clear from the very beginning of his gospel that Jesus is doing a new thing, that Jesus is now the place where heaven and earth meet. Jesus is now the sign and the place that recognizes that God desires to dwell among his people. No longer does God dwell in temple made by hands, but he dwells in the person of Jesus Christ. But there's another place, too, where Jesus kind of criticizes this in the book of John. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals on the Sabbath, which causes all kinds of problems for people. They have all kinds of issues with him here. He heals on the Sabbath. One of the intentions of the Sabbath at that time was to take a specific day and recognize that God is Lord over the world. And it was not only that, but it was a time to allow yourself to kind of replenish and restore what had been worked out of you throughout the rest of the week. It also was a time of replenishing and restoring for the land. So if you would harvest every day of the week, then the seventh day was a time for it to grow. And it was true for you and your body as well. So this was a place of restoration and healing and renewal. So Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, and they have a problem with it. The day that was set aside for healing and restoration, they're having an issue that he's healing and restoring on it. Right? There's a problem there. So also Jesus recognizes and he shows them that he is intricately connected to the one who gave the Sabbath in the first place. Right? It's a beautiful thing. So here in our passage today, in John chapter 6, Jesus is saying, I know that this has been your background. I know that this has been your history. Jesus likes to say this, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. It's a common rabbinic statement. And so here he's saying, I know about the blood thing. I know about Leviticus 17. I know about that. But I'm inviting you to participate in the life of God. I'm inviting you into a new thing, into a new way of being in the world. But not only was this story the one they would have thought of, there was another story that they would have looked back on and would have caused offense for them. This one's in 2 Samuel 23, 13. Three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam. Where, while a band of Philistines was encamped at the valley of Raphaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it for me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. It's important for us to know that um, 
throughout all of Jewish history after David, David was a big deal. David was seen as the ultimate king, the ultimate one to look to. So when there would be supposed messiahs and prophets and people who would step up to try to lead the, the Jewish people, they would always go, if we could just return to the time of David, everything would be great. Everything would be wonderful. So in this passage in 2 Samuel, David is here and he's on the front lines of battle. They're fighting the Philistines and he has these warriors with, them, with him. And he looks over across the battle lines and he sees that there's the gate of Bethlehem and there's a well there. Oh, that I could just drink. That well has great water. If I could just drink from, that, from there, that would be wonderful. But it's impossible. We can't do it. We're in the middle of battle, all this stuff. Well, then these, these men kind of step up and they're like, we're going to go get you that water. So they risk their lives and they do it. And they go and they get the water and they bring him back a drink of water. But David looks back at the scriptures, probably looked back at Leviticus 17, and he recognizes, okay, they risk their lives for this. So it's almost like there's blood in this. And I don't want to play God. I don't want to pretend that I'm God. And so I'm just going to pour out this water. I can't drink of it. I can't have anything to do with that. And we don't quite get that. We don't quite understand why that would happen. But somehow he's saying, I do not want to profit from them risking their lives. I just can't do it. I can't profit from it. I can't benefit from it. So as Jesus is talking about this eating flesh and drinking blood, they have this in their mind. He's saying that he and David are very different. In fact, he's kind of become the opposite of David. David had his men risk their lives for him and that he wouldn't profit from their sacrifice. Jesus is saying, I am going to give my life for you. And I am inviting you and calling you to participate, to profit from my sacrifice, from my life. So all kinds of alarm bells are going off for the Jewish people as they think back to David. And maybe we ask ourselves this question. Are we willing to profit from Christ's sacrifice? A lot of times what this means for us is it means that we have to lay down our stuff and our failed attempts to try to earn goodness on our own and trust that he has made a way for us, that he has given life to us. Now this passage in John 6 is really physical, really earthy. In fact, this word to eat was actually a pretty harsh word. Um, eat is probably too soft. It was more like to gnaw on his flesh or to munch on his flesh, right? It was really earthy and gritty. So if John wanted to use like metaphorical language or really spiritually language, he could have used different words, but he uses this really gritty, physical kind of thing. We have the opportunity every week when we come to the table to gnaw on Jesus, <laughs> okay? I know it sounds strange. Um, to eat his flesh, right? To participate in this sacrifice. Now, John doesn't specifically mention here the order of the Eucharist, but it's not because he doesn't think that that's important here, but it's because he wanted to embed it in the midst of the story that this eating of Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is such a central part to this story. Now, this is not just a mental thing. It's not just an emotional thing. It's a physical thing. It's a really physical kind of thing. Why is that important? Well, for us as Protestants, sometimes when we come to the communion table, we often lose sight that it's a physical thing. We think about the, um, the intellectual things that kind of happen when we come to the table. And those are important, and they're a big part of it, that I remember, that I meditate on, that I ponder on Jesus and who he was. But we can't, we can't forget that he has given us this physical, real meal to eat in remembrance 
of him. Really, at the end of the day, he didn't give us, he didn't say ponder in remembrance of me. Meditate in remembrance of me. Think back fondly in remembrance of me. Although those things are great, he said, take in this meal in remembrance of me. Ultimately, he didn't give us a theology of the atonement. <laughs> he didn't give us a theological construct, but he gave us a meal to take. So the physical stuff in our world is important. The physical stuff is important, and we can't lose sight of that. Why is it important? Well, it's because you are what you eat. Okay, That statement, you are what you eat. When we do physical things in our life, it actually forms us and it shapes us. Now, there are some Native American cultures that take this really literally. So they believe that it, when you eat chicken, you have chicken energy. So you kind of can flap around and get really excited and move quickly. When you eat a lot of beef, you are slow and methodical, right? And you move forward very slowly, very kind of quietly. Um, my little sister, who is, lives in Detroit now, there's a, a story of when she was four or five and she came home after spending time with her friend Rachel. And she said to my mom, Mom, um, Rachel, Rachel said that the chicken that we eat is, is like real chickens. <laughs> right? And, and mom said, well, well, it is. And she kind of straightened up really quickly and was scared. And she's a, she's a vegetarian today. So, um, but... <laughs> But what we do with our physical bodies matters. When we do physical things in our world, and this is true for mental things and all those other things too, emotional things, but it shapes us, it forms us, it forms who we are. So when we come to the communion table, we have the opportunity to be formed week after week into the image of Christ. Now, there's a lot of other things in the scripture that we're told not to do with our physical bodies. To not do, right? And the reason for that is not because God has this list of sin things and these list of good things and he kind of keeps track just to kind of keep in control of us. No, the idea is that when you do something physical that's bent towards destruction or is bent towards kind of what's dark and what's not right and what's bent, when you do those kind of things, then it forms you in that way. It forms you in that direction. When we do things with our lives, with our physical bodies and our, our minds that are good and right and true, it forms us. It shapes us. We are being formed week after week when we come to the table. Now sometimes, um, those of us from charismatic and evangelical perspectives, we can be kind of uh, critical of those from more sacramental kind of traditions. And part of the reason for that is we often think that, oh, they're just trying to do something physical to earn God's grace. Or they're just trying to kind of earn God's love by doing something physical. Of course, there are some people that, that obviously in every tradition that are more legalistic in that way and try to do that. But it's often a misunderstanding of that particular tradition. We all believe, and the Christian story tells us, that it's not because of what we do that, that gives us salvation or gives us grace. It's not the actions that we take. It is the free and accepting love of God. It is the embrace of God. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we could perform good enough in order to get it, but it's because of God's free choice out of his love. But one of the things I'm thankful for in my life is I'm thankful that God's grace for me doesn't end right at the moment that I accept him, that it continues throughout my life. And not only does God's grace forgive me of my sins, but God's grace forms and it empowers and it shapes. We are shaped by God's grace. So when we come to the table, we have the opportunity to be formed 
and to be shaped by the grace of God. The physical things in our lives matter. What we do every day matters. And at the very end of this passage, Jesus points back to one more story in the Jewish tradition in the Old Testament. And it's the story of the Exodus. The children of Israel were set free from bondage and captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they're sent into the desert. And it's in the desert that they receive this manna, this this bread, this really beautiful bread that's able to sustain them through the time that they're in the desert. Well, Jesus says to them that, uh, you know, those people that ate manna, well, they all died eventually. But I'm calling you into a new exodus. I'm calling you into an exodus that's not just a freedom from slavery in Egypt, but it's a freedom from sin and death itself. And you know what? I am going to be the one who sustains you in the desert. I am going to be the one who is the bread of life for you. Beautiful thing. When we come to the table every week, we have the opportunity, somehow we believe, and I don't know exactly how. There's a lot of debate about what actually happens at the table. A lot of theologians debate about, okay, is this more of a symbolic kind of thing? Is this the actual kind of um, body and blood of Christ? Is it somewhere in between? But somehow we believe that we experience grace when we come to the table. When Jesus tells us to do something explicitly in the scriptures, we should do it, right? And we should take it seriously, and it should be important to us. So when we come to the table, we believe that somehow through his death and resurrection, Christ is making this new world. There's this beautiful new world that God is making. And this beautiful new world that we hope that one day, we we trust that one day it will all be fulfilled and all will be made right. This beautiful new world has somehow radically broken into the present world. So when we come to the table, we have kind of a piece of that, a glimpse of that, where heaven and earth are meeting. But that shouldn't be the end for us. As we trust, as we come to the table and we experience this new world breaking into the present world, we take that with us and we trust that that goes with us every day so that our our lives are a sacrament of God's grace. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are so thankful for what you've done for us. We're so thankful that you died for us, that you invited us to participate in the life of God, that you invited us to profit from your sacrifice. We are so thankful for that. And Lord, we are thankful that you are making a new world and you are inviting us to be part of that. Thank you that we can be free of sin and death because of your grace. Not any way that we've performed, but simply because you've called us out of your love. Lord, I pray week after week as we come to the table that we would recognize the significance of what we're doing and that we would see heaven breaking into earth. We trust you, Lord, and we praise you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.